let us uh, now turn or listen on as I conclude the reading for the sermon, Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, where we conclude the reading concerning now the trespass offering. Hear now the word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about uh, a robbery, or if he has extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen, or the thing which he has extorted, or what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing which he found, or all that uh, about which he was he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of the thing, these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. And let us pray together. Father, we thank you again for the teaching of Scripture regarding especially the subject uh, about which we wish to know sin. Sin especially, not only in its guilt, but, uh, but in, in the provision of a remedy. A remedy for our guilt and our guilty consciences. A remedy as well for your wrath. Dear God, we rejoice to read of such things in Scripture. We rejoice especially to find their fulfillment in Christ, the one sacrifice for sin. Help us now, O God, as we sit under the preaching, uh, to to be blessed once more by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come now to what is called the trespass offering, we are confronted at once with two difficulties Uh, One of which I've indicated already in the course of preaching Leviticus, and that is whether there are four or five classes of offerings. There was uh, the burnt offering, just the order of the offerings that we have here, the grain offerings, chapter two, the peace offerings, chapter three, the sin offering, chapter four. When we come to chapter five and then into the beginning of chapter six, we have what is called the trespass offering. And the question, the first difficulty is. Uh, and, and even as I preach this, I'm not entirely clear in my mind, and I'm not sure whether the commentators are either. I, I wonder whether anyone is entirely clear about this, but whether they belong as separate classes, the sin and the trespass offering. Well, let us assume they do. But if there is a difference between the two, it is one which is very slight. The difference is so slight, in fact, that where... Uh, The trespass offering is said to begin, most commonly, chapter 5. If you read uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, you will actually see, uh, in all but one cases, the offering which is offered is called a sin offering, not a trespass offering, uh, telling us either that we're still talking about the sin offering or perhaps that a trespass offering is a sin offering. It's just a subset of it. I think that's my preferred view, though, even then. I'm admitting I'm not entirely sure. You have this variety of language which is present even under the chapter uh, that is most commonly called the trespass offering. But that leads uh, to the second difficulty, and that is 
When does the new emphasis begin? Assuming there is such a thing as a trespass offering, and let us call it a subset of the sin offering, when does the new emphasis begin? When do we finish with the sin offering and begin to consider the trespass offering? Now, conventionally, it is said to begin in chapter 5. Uh, the heading in your Bible likely points in that direction. Mine does. And uh, so do most commentaries. However, and I was just saying this, uh, we don't find the language of the trespass offering with one exception. In verse 6 of chapter 5, it says, uh, he shall bring his trespass offering. Uh, but aside from that, we don't find that language until chapter 5, verse 14, and to the end of chapter uh, 6, verse 7. So that uh, some would say, Andrew Bonar being one of them in his commentary on Leviticus, and Matthew Henry seems to lean in this direction, that the sin offering actually ends in chapter 5, verse 13, thus yielding uh, the division uh, sin offering, chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 13, and then the trespass offering beginning in chapter 5, verse 14, to chapter 6, verse 7, where you only have the language, uh, I believe, of the trespass, of the trespass offering. And uh, even then, I would say, I'm not exactly I'm not exactly sure. I would just note once again that the difference between the two things is slight. But that causes me to return to what difference there is, if any. Gerhardus Voss, in his book, Biblical Theology, says that it is difficult to define. I would agree with him. Henry, Matthew Henry, merely notices that the sin offering is more general. The trespass offering is more specific. I love Henry, but I think that is a little bit weak. Andrew Bonar, getting closer to the true distinction, notes uh, that the sin offerings were, were for sins of a more public nature, sins that were known, whereas trespass offerings were sins of a more private nature. They were known only to the offender until he confessed them. Granted, uh, that, that really only works if you see with Bonar the trespass offerings as beginning not in chapter 5, verse 1, but chapter 5, verse 14. But one thing uh, that is impossible to miss, something that is indeed distinct to the, the trespass offering, if we see it as a separate class, is, uh, and on this the commentaries are certainly agreed, and that is the idea of restitution. The trespass offering is the only sacrifice with this feature. You might have noticed it in, in reading uh, that he was to give the shekel of the sanctuary. He was to make amends. He was to add a fifth. You don't find that in the other ones. And so the trespass offering looks like this. And this is, this is different, certainly, from the other ones, the other four. Not just atonement. Atonement was common to the others, but restitution. Atonement plus restitution made. An animal is offered and money is given. This is something we'll be able to uh, look at more carefully and make much of uh, as we explore the nature of this class of offering. Because of this Morales, another book I've been using, and I confess I'm not enough of a student of Hebrew to be able to confirm this for myself, but uh, using the word which uh, we find here, he actually calls the trespass offering the restitution offering in the class of five offerings. And he notes rightly that the sin offering and what he calls the restitution offering or the trespass offering came first in the order of offerings recorded in Leviticus chapter 9. 
remember, the order that we have here presented in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 does not reflect the order of sacrifices in Israel's worship that we find commencing in Leviticus chapter 9. Uh, the sin and the trespass offering came first, then the burnt offering, then the grain, then the peace. Which creates a, a basic threefold structure to Israel's liturgy as it was found in the temple and later the tabernacle in uh, the order of the sacrifices, expiation in the sin offerings, and we would, we would place the trespass offering as a subset of that, consecration in the burnt offerings, and seeing the grain offerings as a subset of that, and then peace through the peace offerings, expiation, consecration, and peace. And that really is the way by which the sinner is able to be reconciled to God in worship. The picture uh, then, having considered just about now, by the, we'll be able to say this by the time we're done with this sermon, having considered all five types of offerings and their, their purpose and their relation to one another and their place in Israel's liturgy, the picture I think is becoming clearer. It's certainly becoming clearer to me. This book, Leviticus, that I've always been a little uncomfortable with. I think I'm finally beginning to become comfortable with it. And I hope you can share that sense with me as well. Again, this is the Old Testament directory of public worship, more or less. Now, however you construe the verses before us, maybe you call them just sin offerings. Maybe you put the trespass offering in verse 14 and not in verse 1 of chapter 5. However you construe it, the keynote remains what it was in chapter 4 with the sin offering, and that is sin. We find this in verse 1, if a person sins. We find it under all the major headings. If a person commits a trespass, chapter, six, chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, and then again in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, if a person sins. Or the, the King James, I, I prefer, if a soul sins. And, and you can imagine as I'm reading Matthew, Henry, and Bonar, they're using the King James, and all week I've been steeped in that language. If a soul sins... Here is what he is to do. That's the Lord's message to his people. He is saying in essence, or he's answering rather the question, a question that ever confronted Israel. That's a question that ever confronts God's people in any age. And that is, what is the soul to do once it is sinned? And, uh, and, and what a dilemma sin presents to the conscientious believer, especially in his desire to commune with and to worship God. His thought is, upon uh, realizing his sin, my sin has offended God. It has brought guilt upon me, the sinner. It has thus hindered my approach to his holy presence and worship. And what is worse, in addition to that, my conscience is now afflicted with the sense of the guilt of sin. I am burdened and I am troubled by it. I have done that which cannot be undone. What then ought I to do? And here are God's instructions to those souls under the old covenant who were troubled by sins committed. And we can divide the matter under three headings. The first thing we notice, and this is something that stands out, is especially as you read the trespass offering section, chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 7, and that is the variety of, of sins which are mentioned. The various classes of sins. I, I, I think I count ten different 
sins themselves. Though I count seven classes, and that's where I want to focus. Not the sins themselves, but the classes they represent. In reality, the list which is given here is representative of the various classes or the various kinds of sins that we commit daily. Let me emphasize that word, daily. If you look at this list and these types of sins, you will realize that I am sinning all the time. As the, the, the catechism puts it, that we are daily transgressing the, the, the law of God in thought, word, and deed. All the time, in all sorts of way. Hardly a moment passes by, but we transgress one of God's holy laws. Here are the various types of sin. Again, there were seven. There are first civil sins, as we find uh, in verse 1 of chapter 5, envisioning something like a courtroom setting where a man is called upon to give his testimony. Uh, this represents sins where our civic duty is ignored to the harms of others, uh, to the harm of others, such as in the case where our testimony uh, might have helped someone and we didn't give it. Second, uh, and this seems to be more prominent, certainly in a book like Leviticus, there are what I would call ecclesiastical sins. And these have to do specifically with the church, obviously. Civil having to do with society, ecclesiastical having to do with the church. Whether against God's ministers, in that case being the priests, or against his sanctuary. Sins uh, here which are called uh, against holy things. Which is a very general way of speaking about it. Sins with regard to God's worship. Whether by neglecting his ordinances or by defiling them by sin. Again, as I read this, I just I keep thinking of Malachi and what he, Malachi the prophet was condemning Israel for. This in particular. A third class are sins against God himself in particular. This brings us to chapter 5, verse 14, although very similar to the prior point. And I would also note, so ecclesiastical sins are against God, but, but all sins are against God. When we come in the next class to sins against neighbor, the first, which is chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the first thing God says is that this is a trespass against the Lord. By lying to your neighbor, it's a trespass against the Lord. So every sin bears this mark as a trespass trespass against God, whether ecclesiastical, civil, uh, against my neighbor, or whatever. Sins against God, we might call defrauding God, robbing God. Again, think of Malachi. But especially with regard to his worship, that which is most dear to him. Fourth, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, sins against my neighbor. Defrauding God, the third class. Defrauding neighbor, the fourth class. Defrauding him by deceit or by some other means. Uh, you can read about them here. Lying, stealing, uh, withholding, or whatever. Even if you find something that belongs to someone else. You defraud him if you don't give it to him. Number five, and you see how these, these are interwoven. And this again reminds us of Malachi. Duties which are carelessly performed. The one who goes to the tab ta tabernacle, the one who offers his service, uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't quite uh, live up to the demands of the law. His heart is lagging, you might say. That, that is still sin. 
Worship which is coldly or carelessly performed is called sin in the Bible. And it requires an offering. A sixth class, uh, which I got from Matthew Henry, another way of speaking of the things we read here, uh, are cases where we're not exactly sure. Matthew Henry calls these doubtful cases, uh, where we think we might have sinned, or perhaps we didn't. In such cases, an offering was still required. Or seventh, and this really has a way of summing up all the categories, and that is sins which are unknown to us in committing them. All six prior categories are sins of this kind, sins sins which were committed uh, in ignorance. That is the great emphasis which we find in these two two chapters. There is a distinction, uh, which I highlighted last time, between, and much is made of this distinction, sins which were known in the act of committing them, premeditated sin, and those which were unknown and only discovered after the fact. The sin offering and the trespass offering deal only with the second class. Let me just say a word about the first class again. Knowingly going down the path of sin is incredibly dangerous. So we read about the sin and the trespass offering. It's something that ought to impress us. And remembering, I won't read it again, I read it last time, but remembering that such sins, even in the New Covenant, we read there is no sacrifice for. To knowingly go down the path of sin is fearful, especially for a believer. If you go far enough down this path, what you will find is that repentance will be denied to you. That there is no sacrifice for your sin. Only Uh, Hebrews tells us a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery wrath. This is the experience of total and complete apostasy. We ought never even to take the first step. Because we might find, as I've been saying, and as Hebrews makes so clear, you you may think, when I'm ready, I'll turn back. Only you will find, like Esau, that you seek repentance with tears and it will be denied you. Now the question which we have and which I cannot answer, is when has that point been reached? When does a person find that he's gone too far, that he cannot repent and that he is truly apostate and that there is for him no sacrifice? I'm not talking about backsliding here. I'm not even talking about the believer indulging in sin. There are many cases in which these things happen and a believer is fully, by God's grace, restored. My, question, uh, my answer to the question is, who can know? But we ought to be careful. We ought to stand in fear. But what is in view here is the more common category of sins which are unknown in the act of committing them. Sins of ignorance, sins, sins of weakness. Uh, the sense, uh, as ever here, is that our sense of guilt only occurs afterwards. I, I think I said last time, our conscience takes time to catch up with our sin. Something that we have to realize, and this is part of the reality of living in an unfallen state, is that often, and and I'll say it even stronger than that, most of the time we will sin and our conscience will remain silent. That is not an old covenant phenomenon. That is a Uh, A fallen humanity phenomenon, even a redeemed fallen humanity phenomenon, which is why we are sinning all the time and we don't know it. The sin of ignorance. 
And so the question is, if conscience is not going to be a sure guide, how do we know that we have sinned? And there are two primary ways that we will know that we have sinned. Well, three, if we add the conscience finally catches up. But, uh, but setting that aside, the first is by gaining a knowledge of God's will. That's why so much emphasis here is stressed upon the word of God and the law of God and the ordinances of God. Because you won't arrive at a knowledge of these things by your conscience. You need God to tell you. And you need to have uh, a knowledge of his word so that you will not live in the ignorance of sin. You need to be growing in the knowledge of his word. But the other thing that you need. So uh, I need to say one more thing about that. I, I'm just thinking of Hebrews here. You need to be hearing his voice all the time. And not allowing your heart to be, deceived, uh, to be, to be hardened as you hear his voice. But the second thing you need. And this is, this is the message of Hebrews. You need your brother. You need your brother. You need to exhort one another daily. He says that many times in that book. That's why we gather together. While it's still called today. Sometimes it isn't clear to you, but it's clear to your brother. So by listening to God's will and by listening to our brother, the truth is we are sinning all the time without knowing it. Oftentimes we think we are right, but we are wrong. We need our brother and we need God's law to tell us it is otherwise. This is how Andrew Bonar puts it. Here too we learn that the sin... That sin is transgression of the law. It is not merely when we act contrary to the dictates of conscience that we sin. We may often be sinning when conscience never upbraids us. The most part of a sinner's life is spent without any check on the part of the conscience. That's Bonar, not just me, but Bonar saying the same thing. And in fact, I would never have said it if he didn't make me think of it. Most of the time when we sin, it is hidden from us, as it is stated here. And we only become uh, conscious of it after the fact. And thus it is, he says, the solemn duty of inquiring into the Lord's revealed will. By treating ignorance as a sin of such magnitude, the Lord made provision among his people for securing a thorough and continual search into his mind and will. You won't be so ignorant if you take the time to learn God's law. But something else that I would say about sin is its essence. Just very briefly, we notice uh, that it is spoken of as transgression uh, of God's law. Bonar was just saying that that's the essence of what sin is. What is sin? It isn't when my conscience feels guilty. That might accompany it, but it might not. What defines sin is God's law. And when I break that law, I have sinned. But, it, but it's something even deeper than that. And this is the Pharisees' fallacy. The Pharisees made the law ultimate, but they didn't go far enough. There is something that is ultimate, and it isn't the law. It's the Lord himself. What is uh, so sinful about sin is that it is against God. The law simply defines it, but the one who is offended is the Lord himself. Whatever kind of sin it may be, you may have lied to your brother. The sin is against the Lord. Sin is also, we discover here, defilement. It defiles the sinner in its essential nature. Uh, This is something that the Leviticus makes so clear to us. We understand uh, the laws of cleanness and uncleanness uh, don't apply anymore. But the general equity does. And the general equity tells us this, that sin is defilement. 
And that by sinning, the sinner contracts uncleanness personally before the Lord. And this makes him unfit to worship God. Number three, sin is deceit and thus ignorance. Sin is moral darkness. It is men living in the depravity of their own minds. Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 1. And part of the value, as I've been saying this week and last, is uh, in, 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 in um, considering the sin and the trespass offering is just that we have such a thorough discussion of sin itself. And the more we look at what the Lord calls sin, the kinds of sins that require a sacrifice, what we see, seeing sin like this, is that we're sinning all the time. Every day, all the time. Through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. The more acquainted we are with the law, the more conscious we become of our sin. And it's good that we would see this. Not bad, but good. Not thinking that we are, for the most part, free of sin. But rather to realize that our sin, like David, we can say our sin is ever before us. And thus it's ever before the Lord. We are not deceived about ourselves, but we're honest. And to see on the other side of that, thank God, in the sin offering and the trespass offering, that with God there is mercy, there is forgiveness. And in that same law, he makes a provision by which we, having become aware of our sin and having confessed it, might be forgiven and might be cleansed. Forgiven from the guilt, cleansed from the defilement of sin. Again, in the same law, we find this. The next thing we see, that was just the first point, the variety of sin. But the second point is the course prescribed by God for the sinner to take. And there are four things we notice here. And we notice them all, if, if you wanted to just make a mental note, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5. What to do when we sin. And, and this absolutely continues to apply in the New Covenant. The first thing God says to do is confess your sin. Confess it unto me. Confle- confession was implied before, but it was only said now. It was never said before this. Only here does God actually tell the sinner to confess. The, the reason most likely is because, as, as we noted earlier, that these were sins which were unknown. The other sins were known. But these were known only to the sinner. He must confess them if ever they were to be known. And so confession, not in general, but of particular sins. Uh, Just as our confession says that we are to repent of particular sins particularly. And God says to the burdened soul, let him find an outlet of confession before God in the trespass offering. Second, he is to offer. And I would note that the forgiveness is achieved only in this complex of events. For if all he did was to confess, there would be no atonement and thus no forgiveness, no pardon. There would be an acknowledgement of sin, but no atonement for sin. But this the confessor finds in God's law. Provision which is made for atonement through sacrifice together with his confession and not apart from it. And so he brings his offering and he makes his confession and he looks for forgiveness there and nowhere else. Not not in his confession, but in his offering. And, And then the two are seen to work together. 
For, for as we read later on in the prophets so often, that the Lord will not delight in sacrifices without the sacrifices of repentance first. But neither will God accept merely that we confess our sins. First he looks for a true sorrow for sin. And then he, by his grace, makes provision for that sin to be pardoned. And so third, the priest makes atonement. The offering being given, the priest then makes atonement by which the sinner is forgiven. And so the priest takes what he offers and the priest makes atonement for sin. That's, um, well, that's verse 6. The priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. The very sin which he confessed in bringing his offering. And fourth and finally, the sinner makes amends by restitution. And thus we have a clearer picture of what to do when we sin. In answer to the question, what do we do when we sin? And let us see that all four elements remain relevant in the setting of the new covenant. That of confession, that of an offering, that of a priesthood, and that of restitution. When we sin, we are to confess our sin. That's the language of 1 John. In fact, uh, I want to read that now. 1 John chapter 1. Let's see. I bookmarked the wrong page. There we are. 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we heard from him and declare to you that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That is, if we do not confess our sin. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins. There it is, verse 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our ours only, but also for the whole world. You read that, or at least I read that, and I think that's the new covenant sin offering or trespass offering. Confess our sins, he says. If you, if you don't do that, you make a mockery of God himself and his sacrifice. The, sin, the sinner is not only able to confess his sin, but he's also able to bring a sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ himself, the propitiation for our sins. Trusting that by his priestly sacrifice there is forgiveness. And so third we find he's standing before the Father. Not only as our offering but as our great high priest and advocate. And thus we have the assurance in the new covenant as well as the old. That whoever confesses his sin to God on the basis of this sacrifice will be forgiven. He will find forgiveness. But even then we do not stop there. For where we have wronged either God or neighbor. We would also seek to make amends for the wrongs done wherever it is possible. Restitution. Well, let me make this observation. And that is the way we ought to feel about sin in light of the sin offering and the trespass offering. And I would begin with two errors to be avoided. 
the first is Luther the monk. We shouldn't be like Luther the monk. We realize there's all kinds of sins and we realize that we ought to be confessing all kinds of sins. But we find in Luther the monk someone who was neurotic about his sin, who wore out uh, his father Stalpitz uh, with his long sessions of confession and whose conscience was never at peace. He was always terrified. That's one extreme to be avoided. The other is the man uh, whom John condemns, who says he has no sin. He's confessing in a general sense, but he thinks the work is done. To that, I would say, looking back at what we've read in Leviticus, who can read this list of sins and honestly say he has none? Who among us has loved his neighbor as fully as he should? Or who among us has taken pains to worship God with care and zeal according to his commands always? No, we realize there is none without sin and none who do not stand in need of confession and forgiveness. But the balance is to be found in the trespass offering itself. To acknowledge, first of all, that we are sinners in a variety of ways and to confess that plainly and honestly. But to find in that offering a provision made for sin that prevails with God, one that he accepts and one that he delights in. And to find at the same time in our hearts, like Nicodemus, when he met with Jesus, a cheerful and ready spirit to repay whatever we've taken and more besides. Such is the heart of the sinner set free by forgiveness. He's neither neurotic about sin nor careless. Hearts like this will be tender to the realities of sin, always ready to confess them, ready even to admit we may have sinned without knowing it, as Henry said. But hearts equally assured as to the efficacy and the power of the trespass offering, the blood that prevails with God. Hearts, therefore, at ease because they have found reconciliation and they have found atonement through the blood of the sacrifice. Here is the sinner who has looked for remission to ease his burdened conscience and who has found it. And so the promise remains, uh, whether in the old covenant or, or the new, if anyone sins, let him confess his sin. Let him look for forgiveness in the provision of a sacrifice. And let him know with God there is forgiveness. But the last thing I would say as a final point is that we might rightly call Jesus our trespass offering. He is, Hebrews chapter, 12, uh, chapter 10, verse 12, the one sacrifice for sin, the one sacrifice that all the sacrifices anticipated. For every end in view of these laws is fulfilled by his one holy sacrifice. And how abundantly plain uh, scripture is in this regard. And how fully... Uh, each of these sacrifices in Leviticus and how plainly uh, they anticipate his later work. We find in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, the language of the trespass offering is used of him in his sacrifice. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin, a sin offering. And I believe I'm right in saying that that is actually the language of the trespass offering. And when we consider his one sacrifice for sin, we might say how clearly he answers to every end of the trespass offering that we have considered this evening.
For the trespass offering required not only sacrifice but restitution. It looks at sin as a debt that must be repaid with interest. That's the fifth part which is added. Or the one fifth rather. And does not Christ do both? Does he not suffer the full extent of the law's penalty for us? While at the same time repaying our debts with interest by his full and perfect obedience to the law. By sin, we have robbed God. We have defrauded him. We have robbed him daily of his honor, of his worship. But Christ, our trespass offering, not only suffers for our sins, paying the penalty, but at the same time, he pays God everything that we owe him in full and more besides. He makes up for our full lack and he adds his own fifth. Thus, in him, sin is not only pardoned, but the debt of sin is paid as well. God looks upon his son in his doing and dying and declares, my laws which they have transgressed are now satisfied. I regard the debt they have incurred by their sin as paid. Restitution in full. And all this, He grants and bestows upon the elect freely as a gift. The debt of their sin is fully discharged. The honor due to God and his law has been paid in full. And thus we are meant to see, as John says, Jesus is the one through whom we ought to come to God whenever we sin. Oh, if a soul sins, let him confess his sin to God and plead before the Father the merits of Jesus, our advocate and our propitiation. And let the sinner who comes to God in this way be assured his sins are forgiven. In whatever he has sinned, now to use the language of Leviticus chapter 6 verse 7 at the very end. In whatever he has sinned, he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may, be, he may have done in which he trespasses. Yes, let the burdened soul who comes to God at the, in this way be at rest for God has forgiven him. Amen. And let us uh, respond now to God in praise by singing together uh, praise to our Savior, hymn number 175.